You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock. Many African countries have over the years undergone various phases of reform efforts aimed at enhancing governance, efficiency and service delivery. Indeed, the evolution of public sector reforms reflects a dynamic process shaped by historical, political, economic and social factors. For example, in the immediate aftermath of gaining independence, there were efforts to reform the civil service and economic challenges in the 1980s resulted in the adoption of structural adjustment programs which included public sector reforms to streamline government operations and reduce public expenditure. The democratization wave of the 1990s resulted in a renewed focus on good governance and many countries tried to strengthen institutions, improve accountability and enhance transparency. This era also witnessed the establishment of anti-corruption agencies and the adoption of codes of conduct for public officials. In recent decades, there has been growing attention on decentralization processes and devolving power and resources to local authorities with the goal of improving service delivery and encouraging greater community participation. There's now also increased interest and efforts at leveraging technology to boost public sector efficiency, so-called e-government initiatives, and digital platforms that enhance the effectiveness of development projects and improve transparency of decisions. But how effective have such reforms been and what really is the problem? Is it a case of institutional mimicry where institutions adopt the language and behavior of reform without necessarily achieving substantial changes on the ground? And what about the role of merit in civil service recruitment? And then there's this whole issue of bureaucratic motivation or sources for demotivation. And finally, the role and influence of external actors is also sometimes cited as a big, big challenge. To discuss the complex and multifaceted public sector reforms process, I'm joined by Happy Kayuni, who is a professor of political science at the University of Malawi's Political and Administrative Studies Department. He is currently also the executive dean of the School of Law, Economics and Government at the University of Malawi. I have been very fortunate to have collaborated with Professor Kayuni over the years. And so when I visited Malawi earlier this year, it provided us with an opportunity to catch up. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Happy Kayuni centered around the complexities and potential disconnection between the rhetoric and impact of public sector reforms. Happy, it's good to see you. I am thrilled to be back in Malawi. It's been almost one and a half years, but to see you today makes me very happy indeed. Thank you so much, Prof. Welcome to Malawi, the home heart of Africa. Indeed, Malawi is your second home. Probably I should say that it should be your first home, (laughs) (laughs) not your second. (laughs) It's so nice that we can sit here in Blantyre today. It's beautiful sunshine. We organized a roundtable this morning on the climate crisis. And one of the issues that I mentioned during this meeting was, as you've heard me say before, in many of these discussions worldwide on poverty, 
on development, on climate change. There's a lot of interest in understanding what's going on in Malawi. Malawi has always seemed to be a very good illustrative example of what works and what does not. And some people say there are developing countries and then there's Malawi. It's almost like they're saying nothing works. Malawi is in a unique category. So having returned to Malawi after one and a half years, I'm wondering, Happy, what has changed? How can you explain that many countries in the region are developing. Some of your neighbors have even become middle-income countries. What has happened to Malawi? Why is Malawi not developing as fast as it should be? Indeed, I agree with you that when you look at our neighbors, Mozambique, Zambia, Tanzania, they have made significant progress. But when we look at Malawi, it seems we have not just stagnated, but <laughs> actually others say we have regressed. And so there are so many questions that are posed. In my view, among other things, among other things, it's also something that is not well um, discussed in uh, the media, etc. It's the issue of uh, public sector itself. To what extent does it have the capacity to actually carry this or support development initiatives in this country? So in my view, I feel that among other things, yes, people have talked about the leadership. They have talked about many other challenges that the nation is facing. But I think there's something that we don't really talk about, and it's the public sector itself. Uh, when you look at, for example, Tanzania, what happened with Magufuli when he was president of that country, what happened is that the first thing, he looked at the public sector. If you closely followed his leadership, the first thing was to deal with the public sector. Whether they, he was doing it rightly or wrongly, that's a different story altogether. But he, at the end of the day, his focus was to make sure that the public sector is able to deliver. And that was something he emphasized. And to some extent, the nation benefited from that kind of initiative. In our country, I think our public sector is the one which is pulling our nation backward, in my view. There has not been serious reform in our public sector. So in my view, that is one of the issues that needs to be looked at closely. To what extent is our public sector ready to ensure that we should forge ahead as a nation? You know, last week I was giving a talk in Pretoria. I have this uh, new position. I was extraordinary professor. I love this title. <laughs> and I was asked to talk about the politics of poverty, and it was natural to talk a little bit about state capacity. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think a little bit about some of the conversations you and I have had over the years, it seems that Malawi says yes to everything. It, it does all the right things. It signs all the treaties and... Mm -hmm. It is very popular among everyone yes. because you're, you're not, you don't refuse to do anything. <laughs> you say yes to everything. But the strength of the state is perhaps more questionable. One way in which I see things is that Malawi often tries to implement good policy, but it's not just an implementation problem. And here I've heard many UN people, like yes. the previous resident coordinators, say the problem in Malawi mm. is it's policy-rich but implementation poor. Mm. I don't necessarily agree entirely. Implementation is a challenge. Mm. But I think we should also be asking ourselves, does Malawi have the right policies? Mm -hmm. Do they have the right plans? And it is in that context, I think your point about the public sector 
is extremely important. So let's talk a little bit about the capacity of the civil service. How capable do you think Malawian civil servants are? And what is it that motivates them? And what is it that demotivates them from doing their job? That's very important. I think when you look at the Malawi civil service, I would say during the one-party era, we had the one-party, we got our independence in 1964 as a nation. From 1964, I, to be more explicit, we can say from 1971, we had a one-party state. Till 1994, when we introduced the multi-party system of governance, the civil service was portrayed as one of the most professional, one of the leading, in fact, in Africa, based on what other, uh, using different uh, indicators. It was said that the, the, the public sector was very professional and so on. But after 1994, many things changed. One of the things that changed was the politicization of the public sector. So previously, in the one-party era, although we had one political party in the country, the moment a public servant indicates that they are interested to join politics, immediately they were fired, although we had one-party state. So that should send a message to you that a government was committed to ensure that the public sector was very professional. But after 1994, what we have seen is that in terms of promotions, it's not really much about performance, but to some extent about connections, political connections and the other factors. And to some extent, they have somehow affected our public sector. Not only that, you discover that individuals who are, I can say, in courts, outsiders, who are not in the mainstream public service, they end up joining at a higher level, like a principal secretary, director. I'm talking about things that happened from 1994. So it, it is now a general practice to see somebody from somewhere else, they become directors in the uh, mainstream public sector. Yet we have professional technocrats who have been in the system for years. They have been serving government. Instead of promoting those individuals, we end up bringing on board individuals who are not, because they, are, they have connections. So to some extent, it affected the civil service. Not only that, there were certain key positions in the public sector that before you you assume such kind of um, uh, positions, first of all, you must go through what we call an induction training. And this induction training will be about about six months, if I'm not mistaken. So, for example, if you want, if you are you have been promoted to the position of executive officer or principal officer, you are supposed to go through this particular induction. And in this one, the whole idea was to make sure that element of professionalism should manifest within the civil service. And therefore, corruption was very low in those days because going through such kind of a program, the civil service, especially key officers, were taken through the core aspects of what does it mean to be a civil servant or a public servant. So going through that process, it created a certain kind of an identity which is, was unique to those working for the public service. And it was also rare to find somebody working in the civil service, resigning and joining the private sector. It was not common in those days because there was some kind of loyalty and some kind of attachment which was very strong to the civil service. But over the years, we have lost that. 
and also i don't want to talk more about uh, in terms of uh, financial rewards when you compare the private sector and the public sector that's even another story on its own <laughs> the disparities are huge and even within the public sector itself, I was uh, deliberately using the word public sector because the public sector is a little bit broader in our context of Malawi. We have those who are in mainstream, what we call civil servants, who are working in ministries and government departments. And then we have others who are working in parastatals. What also has happened is that there are also disparities within the public sector. So you see that those who are working for parastatals and those who are working for the civil service, the salaries are significantly different within looking at the same qualification, same responsibilities, but uh, disparities are very high. Uh, in fact, about two years ago, the president set up a commission led by the current vice president to have a look at the whole system. They were given some TORs, and some of them was to look at these issues. Why are there disparities, and what should be done to address them? And this commission came into place because there were serious problems that of corruption and other things that were being observed in the public service. And that report has not yet been released as we are speaking now. But just to show you that it's an issue which is serious, and it has also received attention even at higher levels. Well, the very fact that that report hasn't been made public speaks volumes. <laughs> but you know that we have been interacting with civil servants for very many years, I think for the last 16, 17 years that I've been coming to Malawi. And you and I have co-founded a master's program yes. in public administration and management. And we've trained, I think, over 100 civil servants exactly. the last few years. Mm. And one of the things that strikes me, you know, having spoken to our students who are now, many of them were in the civil service and some of them have got a promotion now because they have a master's degree. There are several parts to the story as I see it. One is obviously salaries, disparities, mm -hmm. and many people say that the private sector pays them better so they don't feel motivated. But there are some people who have made a good career for themselves, yes. have progressed. And if you compare the salaries, it's not so bad. They often get increments. So salaries have been rising. And relative to others in Malawian society, civil servants are not that badly paid. What I have heard from many is that there are also other aspects that prevent them from doing their job more efficiently. One of them could be just simply not necessarily being able to make sure that their decisions are impartially implemented. So there is constant political interference, which is not only the case in Malawi, it could be in many parts of the world. So they feel that their political masters are asking them to do certain things, maybe even bend the rules, maybe to target a particular area or certain population, even though the bureaucrat feels some, somebody else should be prioritized. So there's this constant interference, which in theory, could be also good in the sense that politicians are showing an interest in public policies, but it could also lead to demotivation. The bureaucrat simply says, okay, I give up. If I don't follow what the political master is saying, I'll have to 
just leave i'll be fired i'll be transferred i'll be sent to the village i don't know where mm-hmm. as a punishment posting let me just do it even though i myself know that what my political master is asking me to do is not the best thing and then there's the third aspect which you alluded to corruption even if you are paid really well i keep hearing this and i'd like to hear your views on this is that the civil servant in many african countries is overburdened in the sense that one does not just have responsibility for one's family but there's an extended family there are relatives there are children of relatives you have to support them so the salary often isn't enough and one is constantly under pressure to generate new revenue whether it is through attending a workshop that you're not interested in but getting an allowance or through other means Do you find some of these explanations to be more credible than others this extended family this political interference or are there other explanations as to why the public sector often isn't as efficient as it should be I think uh, prof uh, for raising such a very important issue I have had a lengthy discussion with several individuals concerning what you also initially talked about the capacity of the state You see it has a serious implications so many people have never believed this argument and uh, I have always put it across to say that uh, the issue of extended families is often overlooked in the context of the west probably especially nordic countries we see that the state is very powerful and it is capable of uh, taking care of the vulnerable but in the context of most african countries for example i am a professor in the university of malawi when they hear that i'm talking of i mean somebody is interviewing me on the radio they call me oh we heard you you were on the tv and so on and at the end of that sentence they will say but you know i don't have fertilizer can you please send me some money <laughs> so you see at the end of the day everybody who is connected to me we are talking about extended families here they will make sure that uh, you support them if you don't support them financially you are looked at upon as an outcast somebody who has forgotten his roots you know something like that so you have somehow to demonstrate that uh, you know it's something of an identity to say that uh, i am connected to these people and uh, i should make sure that i support them not only that but you also you, you are aware that in most african countries our um, health systems education systems i would say maybe brutally say they are in a chaos <laughs> so at the end of the day you want your children extended families to be in good schools and also to be attended to by um, good uh, health personnel etc and it's expensive so you see because the state Uh, does not have the capacity to do certain things then uh, that responsibility is pushed on uh, the middle class especially those who are working and if you have a permanent job even if you don't necessarily need to be a, a, a top most manager even if you are just a clerk or anybody but you are employed you are working you have a steady job automatically everybody is looking upon you It's like you are taking care of your village you know so they are looking upon you that uh, if somebody has been selected to go to from primary school going to uh, high school you be responsible because in Malawi and just like in most african countries primary school is uh, free but uh, if you send your your own children to th- these public schools 
you know the, that the quality is so low, so you are forced to send them to expensive schools. So it's a chain of events, a chain of events. But some would say that we understand those commitments, but that does not mean that one should gain an income, an extra income, illegally through corrupt ways. So the argument would be, well, you have to take care of that extended family also from the the income that you get, your salary. So, but are you saying then that just the salary itself is not enough and that means that people look for other ways of generating revenue? Is, is that how, how you see it? Is that what explains rent-seeking behavior by bureaucrats? It can be one of the reasons. And as you have rightly said, it does not justify why somebody should get those resources illegally. It doesn't justify, uh, not at all. Because as I mentioned initially, during the one-party era, it doesn't mean that those working in the public sector were rich. Uh, but corruption was very low. Why? Because there were other robust systems put in place to make sure that this civil servant should, first of all, acknowledge why they are there and what is their role. And so you discover that uh, although they were not doing very well, but they were very loyal to their institution and to the nation so that they were able to conduct business without necessarily jeopardizing ethical issues. But that is significantly different now because we have not emphasized the ethical aspect of related to their duties. Then, of course, you will always find an excuse why you should get resources illegally. I mean, if you, have, you are done away with the issues of ethics, it is possible to justify anything. We shouldn't also overlook the fact that the state capacity, the failure of the state to accommodate some, some of the basic needs of the people plays a role that we cannot ignore, but it doesn't justify. So let's talk a little bit about your work, and you worked extensively on public sector reforms. Tell us a little bit about the major areas of reform that countries on the continent have been interested in. You may want to reflect, of course, on Malawi more specifically, but what are the things that you think are important when one thinks about reforming the public sector? Is it combating corruption? Is it making decisions more transparent, making sure there's accountability mechanisms, there's communication, dissemination, there is local participation in policy formulation, trying to better understand implementation failures or gaps. Tell us a little bit about the range of issues that a country like Malawi has been trying to grapple with, and then we can also discuss the impact of some of these reforms. I think what you have uh, just said is actually a summary of the key issues that Malawi and the other African countries have been focusing on as far as public sector reform is concerned. There is actually a day that has been set apart by the African Union, the Public Sector Day. I think it must be October or somewhere. I've forgotten the actual date. But the point is that it was also acknowledged by the 
African Union that the public sector is essential as far as ensuring that there is development in these countries. So what has happened is that mostly, among other things, there is what we call service charter. The service charter reform is something that tries to bridge the gap between the public and government institutions. So trying to bridge that gap. Now, uh, even APAM, APAM is a body that uh, looks at uh, its membership is drawn from key managers of public sector in Africa. So APAM. So they have also embraced service charters. Now, when you critically look at service charters, they have all those elements, uh, making sure that there is participation, uh, making sure that uh, the duty bearers are taken to task, ensuring that uh, there is uh, efficient service delivery, so many elements are attached within. So it's more like recognized as a, a, a holistic package. Malawi has also tried to, to implement the service charter. There are several selected uh, districts in Malawi whereby the program has been implemented. However, I should uh, quickly point out that uh, one of the challenges that we have faced, and uh, based on studies not done only in Malawi but even other countries, is that sometimes these in, uh, initiatives become more complicated when development partners also come in with their own agenda. So in the case, for example, of the service chart I'm talking about, there have been so many development partners who have been coming in, but mainly their interests have been diverse. And to some extent, Malawi has been excited to embrace some of the, these initiatives because the, Malawi has been interested in the funds that are channeled through these development partners. But at the end of the day, when you look at what has happened on the ground, is something different. But Malawi has always been excited to make sure that we embrace such kind of initiatives and run with those initiatives, even if different development partners are bringing different perspectives to the same issue. In this context, correct me if I'm wrong, my impression is that the development partners, the donors, the international agencies are not so interested in focusing on the civil service because the idea is that they are there already they've been recruited hopefully based on merit and now we just have to deliver the services it is about making service delivery more efficient rather than investing in thinking about how the civil service can be made more robust it's almost like that area is often neglected training and I'm trying to justify why we did a master's program. We felt that there was a huge need. We did a we did a needs assessment, right? And most people said we don't have enough education. A lot of the civil servants here just had a bachelor's degree. They wanted a master's degree. They wanted advanced degrees that would help them in their careers, not just to get a promotion, but to do their jobs better. But that kind of investment in the public sector employees as I understand it, has been lacking. You have rightly mentioned the program which you, we have been running at the University of Malawi and with support from uh, you, uh, University of Oslo as well. We have local government institutions in Malawi whereby these local government institutions, there are several key positions whereby, for example, director of uh, DPD, we call it DPD, planning and, uh, and development. 
according to the standards that we are set, the minimum qualification should be a master's degree. But you discover when you go across the country, you discover that uh, there are many individuals occupying those positions and they don't have a, a master's. I'm just giving one example. So, indeed, our needs assessment demonstrated that we should ensure that we build the capacity of several key government institutions. And that program was part of that package. I should also point out that I have seen it many, many times whereby individuals who have been trained have also left or resigned and joined the private sector, NGOs. I have seen that countless times to an extent that sometimes you wonder. I, first of all, I should mention that if through what we have what we call DHRMD, Department of Human Resource Management and Development. It is doing a fantastic job to make sure that they, they build, the, among other things, building the capacity of civil servants. So they identify key areas, the gaps, and then if there are scholarships, etc., and also using government funds to make sure that people are trained in those positions and filled by individuals who have the right capacity. They are doing a fantastic job, but still more, we should accept the fact that the needs are too many. At the end of the day, prioritizing is a, a big issue. Should they prioritize training or maybe there are other things, you know, the needs are just too many. So it is not possible. Government doesn't have the luxury of just uh, training everybody for relevant positions. So there's that big challenge we must accept. We must also accept that uh, those who are trained sometimes, they end up <laughs> joining other institutions for various reasons. And here, of course, I have to mention the nurses from Malawi <laughs> who are working in the UK. Yes. This is, of course, a big challenge because Malawi, the government spends a huge amount of money training nurses. But, of course, the challenge is if you don't give them a job after they finish their education and if there is an opening elsewhere, mm. you can't prevent them from traveling. But that is a waste of national resources, mm. training, and then either they leave for another country, brain drain, or they opt for the private sector. Mm. But let's uh, assume in an ideal world that the most perfect reforms are proposed, they're undertaken, whether it is in relation to curbing corruption, it is implementing the service charter, mm. it is making sure that public services are delivered more efficiently, citizens are not treated in an arrogant way, but there's a genuine service mm. that is provided by public servants. That's why they're called servants. They're, mm -hmm. they're serving mm. the public. That there is perhaps policy coherence because many of these issues we're talking about often take place, at least the challenges, because one ministry is not talking to the other one, and they may be doing the same thing, they're replicating certain things, or blaming each other, waiting for somebody to, to act when they could have done it themselves. So the various problems that, that the public administration, the public sector faces, let's assume that all of these have been addressed, that mm -hmm. there's a proper diagnosis, mm -hmm. that a doctor has come yes. and has found the problems, mm -hmm. issues the prescription, and the government decides to implement them. What happens then? Mm -hmm. What explains the fact that many countries, not just Malawi, on the African continent, mm -hmm. also elsewhere, a whole series of often very ambitious reforms are mm -hmm. proposed, 
and then not much comes out of it. One feels a bit deflated, you know, you hear about all of these reforms and then you come back and you see they're not really having much of an impact. That's uh, quite an interesting observation. You know, there's a basic question which we also need to ask ourselves. Reforms for whom and for what, you know? I think sometimes it becomes a scholarly debate, but I think it's an important question. We have so many stakeholders in the reform process. We have politicians, then we have the bureaucrats themselves, and then we have the public, we have the development partners. So all these are interested parties. The moment it is on a political podium that we want to reform, Sometimes I have seriously asked questions myself to say that are these reforms really meant to reach out or benefit the public or what the politicians are telling us is that they want these reforms so that they become popular. And so it doesn't matter whether there is impact or not, but as long as there is some kind of legitimacy that they are doing something, you know, <laughs> there is that perception, you know, <laughs> that they are doing something. You know, it's sad based on my own observation is that it is more about in the interest of the politicians and less in the interest of making sure that there is indeed impact on the ground. So whether there is impact or not, as long as they have created a perception that they are doing something, something that actually legitimizes their actions, you know, something that sounds well to, the <laughs> to all the key stakeholders. So there is what we call in political science and public admin, there is what they say institutional mimicry whereby the institutions will try to mimic the, the language, the way they behave, the way they do things, should be according. It's like a social desirability. So the language, everything should be couched to us, the language of, of reform and so on. Because if you don't do that, then you, you are not seen as somebody legit, somebody who you cannot deal with. Uh, so you have to use that language in your manifesto or if it's a political party or if a government officials, something in the vogue, you know, something like that. So somehow I feel, I fear that in most cases, it's not really so much about what is happening on the ground, but it's making sure that you fit in yeah, the system, the current language of the day, that it's about reform. So make sure you talk this language and so on. And uh, that is carried on and on. And people talk about reform, reform. There's this report, there's this committee, there's this, that. And so there's this institution which has been established that will look into this matter. They will submit, uh, they're about to submit a report. I will look into this and we go on and go on and go on. At the end of the day, no action on the ground. But there's a, a lot of funds that have been transferred. At the end of the day, most of the developing countries have learned also So, how to behave that way. So to speak the language of the donors and so on. And they have also acknowledged, they know that uh, they have also exploited the weaknesses among the development partners. The competition among them, because they also want to, they are branding themselves and they are bringing about something for visibility and so on. So you pick this because according to donor X or development partner X, this is their language. This is what they believe in. So we run with this. And if somebody also comes, 
comes, we will study them and we see what they are talking about. We will also talk like them, uh, mimic them, and then run with what they are saying. <laughs> but when we mean something different on the ground. So at the end of the day, we, nothing is happening. If I can simplify this, the short story is there's lack of political commitment. One is just trying to mimic what others want. You're not genuinely committed. And if you're not committed, you're just doing it for the show. Obviously, there won't be much political interest or commitment. It is just going to go through the motions. But can you think about countries or even within Malawi of examples where reforms did have an impact, that there was political commitment behind these reforms and they delivered that reforming something actually made a difference. Can you think about any of those examples? What I can say is that possibly there was a time when he, the current vice president, in his first term as vice president <laughs> of Malawi, at that time he was the vice president of the DPP-led government. DPP is Democratic People's Party, which he came into power some years back, but I was out of government after the death of the former president, Bingwam Tarika. But it came back in, was it 2017 <laughs> or so? I can't remember the actual year. But the point is that when they were campaigning, they were very serious. So there was that partnership of the president then was Arthur Peter Mtarika and the vice was Chirima. So these two, especially the force was coming from the, the vice president at that time. So the language was not only, you'd see that to some extent it was not just mere talk. But you'd see that there was a real commitment to make sure that we should see change in the public sector. So what was happening is that as soon as they took over the government, the vice president led a commission which was looking at, they actually conducted consultations throughout the country to look at what are the bottlenecks, what are the challenges. And for the first time in Malawi, I should say, we saw, number one, that for the first time, a vice president was uh, in the forefront looking at the issue of public sector reform, which has never happened before. Previously, it was somebody, maybe it would just be a certain individual, well, not well-known individual or a judge and so on. But in this case, it was the vice president himself chairing this commission, going across the country, look, identifying the bottlenecks, and he actually would see throughout the country that there was that uh, commitment, that uh, I would say in the courts, uh, uh, some kind of botuboro or spiritual language, uh, the baptism of fire. <laughs> because uh, there was that commitment and people were talking about it in the media everywhere for the first time. Indeed, people were free and uh, they came up with a brilliant report which identified key areas what happened is that every ministry and department, they said they should identify issues which they want to deal with. And then uh, there was a public ceremony where they were supposed to sign. Chief executives or managers of those public institutions were supposed to sign and say, yes, this is what we have committed ourselves to and we want to make sure that we deal with this. Of course, the report dealt with uh, nine key areas, but you saw this, each and every public sector institution was supposed to also identify areas which they want to deal with and to make sure that there is a profound and long-lasting reform. 
that public ceremony also created something about something like accountability commitment and the president vice president were there and so on but now what happened is that the vice president then became a little bit i can say became popular in other words and so the president based on what was happening then it is said that it didn't of course come out in the public but <laughs> but within the party they felt that the vice president was becoming very popular was taking all the shine and therefore that commission which was led by the vice president they said it's no longer necessary because the reform have already started therefore they will continue as such without necessarily having this particular commission and that was the end of that commission and the moment they dissolved that particular committee somehow everything also was dampened as far as reform in Malawi is concerned so in my view what was successful that commitment which demonstrated that everybody in the country was talking about reform there were cases when for example when the vice president was going around the country at that time for consultations if public servants were coming very late to the meetings you know there's a culture in Malawi when you and in some other african countries when you agree for a meeting at 10 o'clock it means 12 o'clock <laughs> <laughs> so the vice president would be there 15 minutes before and if anybody comes late you say are you really a public servant what are you doing how can you be here so late actually reprimanding those officers there was some kind of transformation you know in the country but suddenly it fizzled out the moment he was no longer leading that commission because of political reasons I'm so happy you mentioned punctuality or the lack of it. Now, this this is a bit of a controversial theme. I have spoken about this with my students, the civil servants, the people I meet, and many point to the fact that it starts there, that people don't come to office on time, people don't come to conferences or workshops or roundtables on time, and I have discussed this with my colleagues. Some of them say, well, you know, people living in these countries face a lot of challenges there's no power there may be transportation issues there are all kinds of very good reasons as to why people often don't come on time but according to my informants my civil servant students they say that it has become often an organizational culture mm-hmm. and it starts with the boss the boss is never on time so <laughs> so so i say you know what happens if you're late they say well, it's not a problem because if the boss was there 15 minutes before then he or she could punish me or hold me to account but when they themselves are late nobody can even point a finger and this is just a way of asking you to please reflect on how you think that kind of administrative culture develops let's say you are a fresh recruit because in malawian schools like in in most other countries children are expected to come to school on time yes. you can't be late to class yes. the same thing at our universities and when we teach in zomba we expect them and if they don't come on time there is a valid reason so why is it that it is acceptable in the public service not to come on time and the kind of impact you think this has because after all we've been talking about all the problems let's talk about what you would do because you're looking so so well dressed today you're always well dressed you look like the next president of malawi what would you do if you were in power happy 
What would you do to really change things around mm. so that there isn't just talk but actually action, that reports are not shelved, mm. irrespective of how popular or unpopular the person mm. is doing it? So, mm. so can you say a little bit about your thoughts on punctuality, administrative mm. culture, mm. and how that impacts mm. governance mm. In, in, in a country like Malawi? Yeah, I think uh, organizational culture is something that is uh, very important. I should mention here that I have been trying to avoid to say too much about Magufuli <laughs> because somehow he's not a very good example in certain areas. So sometimes he's a controversial figure. But there's something that you can clearly see from Magufuli. Even what happened in Malawi, which I can also relate, the current vice president when he was under the DPP-led government, what happened is that he would go to the headquarters of what we call Capitol Hill, the headquarters of the civil services at what we call the Capitol Hill. So he would go there because in Malawi we start at half seven and in the morning. And then he would be there before half seven. Then he would be checking in key government offices to find out if officers have reported for duties. And then he would also reprimand those who have not done. And I tell you, it didn't go beyond a week. Within a week, things changed at Capitol Hill. What was happening is people now started reporting on time and things like that. Now, uh, let me, I was talking about the issue of Magufuli. You know, it's also something similar, you know, surprise visits, you know. And they generated some kind of transformation in the civil service, you know. So the issue about transport or whatsoever can't arise, you know, because there is a message that is coming across from leadership to say that you must do this, and so on and so forth. They were setting an example. Indeed, ultimately, things were changing. I feel that it doesn't necessarily need to wait for, as you have said, there are certain things we can do. We don't have to wait for development partners. We don't have to wait for a concept, not a proposal. There are certain things which we can do on our own. The issue I talked about after 1994, uh, we lost a lot in the transition from one party to multi-party system of governance. One of the issues is um, something related to professionalism. We have noted that in most of uh, the civil servants they have, by, because they were, became frustrated probably, I don't know, with the system, uh, the way it was operating, recognizing those who, who needs to be promoted, etc. Then over the years, what was happening is that civil servants started relaxing and so on and not taking their job seriously, some of them. One of the manifestations is reporting for duties very late. And how it is passed on, I have had a chat with some of our students who are just joining the public service. And sometimes they, they tell you some kind of funny stories. They say that they, sometimes they report for duties on time for a week and later on some individuals, the experienced ones in courts, the experienced ones, tell them to say that, but why are you doing this? <laughs> By the way, how much are you getting as your salary? <laughs> so they are, instead of motivating them, it's the opposite. So those already in the system, they look at the, the younger ones and say, tell them that, no, 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 you are just wasting your time trying to be loyal or obey the rules and the regulations. You not benefit anything. You not get any rewards for doing what you are doing. You know, so by the end of the day, even if they want to be uh, to try as much as possible to stick to the rules, after a year or so, then they follow uh, everybody else. So this is just one example, but it can be several other elements within the system that ne negatively affecting the civil service. 
there is often the feeling that countries like Malawi need money, that the big problem with service delivery, the big problems with public sector reforms is that there aren't enough resources. Malawi particularly is very reliant on donor funding. Domestic revenue mobilization is limited. I would also argue that a big problem is the legitimacy of the state, that the Malawian state, for me, often appears to be more ceremonial. It is trying to perform certain functions. It is sometimes invisible, often, I would say. It tries to insert itself by having roadblocks, police here and there, telling people, this is what I'm doing with your money, the taxpayer money. But it isn't always believed by the citizen. And so I think there's a trust issue. Mm. Even if the government wants to really genuinely undertake reforms, the public may not be convinced because they will point to the past track record and say, I've heard this before. So every time there is a new, there's a change in government, you hear this excitement. Mm. Now we're going to have one million jobs. Mm. Now we're going to fight corruption. Now everything's going to change and then it becomes more of the same. Could we end on maybe an optimistic <laughs> note? I mean, you know that uh, there is often the, the, the excuse given as to why Malawi does not do well is because, oh, there's so much interference from the donors, there's lack of policy space, we don't get to do what we want, we need money, it's not our money, and therefore others decide over us. What would your advice be, Happy, to the international community, but also to your own leaders? Mm. What should they be focusing on in the years ahead? There are so many challenges in this country. We recently experienced a, a cyclone, mm. Cyclone Freddy, mm. devastation mm. unheard of, unseen before, massive. Unfortunately, this may become quite normal. There are lots of challenges and crises that are coming. What would your advice be in terms of planning, in terms of diagnosis? What are the areas people should be focusing their attention on? Thank you so much. I think, you see, issues of trust. When you look at Afrobarometer, Afrobarometer surveys are conducted in over 32 African countries, and Malawi is one of them. They are done almost approximately every two years. And uh, since 1999, we have had Afrobarometer surveys in Malawi, among other African countries. The data clearly shows that the trust in uh, government institutions such as the police and the other, the judiciary, etc. A few, for example, the judiciary, the military, probably the trust has been a little bit better comparatively better. But when you look at other key institutions of government, it has been going down, almost throughout, consistently going down. So trust is already a big issue as far as public institutions in Malawi are concerned. Now, just like in across Africa, there is the issue which we embraced in 1998, decentralization. Now, the whole idea of decentralization was to make sure, because government was highly centralized, so let us bring the government down to the people themselves so that they should be, it should be able to respond to their needs immediately. Honestly speaking, we have not done very well as far as the local government structures are concerned. If government can strengthen this idea or this issue, because we are very good on paper as far as decentralization is concerned, in my view, the perception of the people when they think about government, they are still looking at the central government. But yet, 
on paper and in a, we have what we currently we call Malawi 2063 which is a, an overarching development policy for the country it is also emphasizing the issue of decentralization strengthening those local structures and so on we have been talking about this for too long but in practice every government since 1994 has not really embraced the idea of strengthening lo- these local structures so in my view if we can strengthen them then the people will start trusting government because they will have government closer to them which is responding to their immediate need and not necessarily looking at central government per se because the perception is still central government and as far as the perception is still central government we can never uh, deal with the issue of trust whatever initiatives that come from uh, from uh, central government they will never be fully embraced and you will never see a positive outcome but if we can strengthen these local structures which are visible and which are also closer to the people so in other words for example if you are looking at district assemblies each district assembly we look at the positions there you discover some of them are not filled or not filled by qualified people already we have weakened the structures on the ground and in terms of funding how much are they getting and and so on you discover that it's not much the transfer from central to local is not as much as expected so at the end of the day the process has systematically weakened the local structures of government and yet that is an area which is needs to be strengthened in order to enhance legitimacy and so on so in my view that's an area that we need to focus on I've uh, enjoyed working with you over the last I don't know how many maybe several <laughs> decades. It is fantastic to see your meteoric rise as one of the most influential professors in the country in the region. I was asked by some journalists earlier today you guys do all these studies does the government listen to you <laughs> uh, i hope somebody will listen to this conversation high up in the malawian system and uh, try to think seriously over some of these policies these reforms and really try to grapple with these challenges that are well known and there are very good you know well known solutions to fix them but somehow they get lost in translation so thank you very much for coming on my show today i'm of course in your home in malawi but i'm very grateful that that we had this conversation thank you uh thank you so much prof indeed the we come a long way <laughs> and it's a pleasure to talk to you about issues dealing with Malawi i'm very passionate about our country and we hope that uh, they will listen those <laughs> thank you if you enjoyed this conversation please spread the news among friends and colleagues and share the link to the podcast on social media You can tag us on Twitter at Global Dev Pod and Dan Banik. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Banik from the University of Oslo. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.